Could the California dream be coming to an end? Climate One conversations feature oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, the exciting and the scary aspects of the climate challenge. I'm Greg Dalton. California's water system was built in the 1960s and 70s, when the state had about half of the 40 million people who live there today. And every one of its citizens needs water to drink, bathe, and cook. But only about 10% of the state's water is used in urban areas. Half flows to the environment, supporting ecosystems and recreation, and 40% goes to agriculture. Well, when, when the resource is finite, then you have to make choices. And so in the San Joaquin Valley, they're going to have to choose which land deserves that water. It's alfalfa. It's Holsteins. Mark Eriks is the author of The Dreamt Land, Chasing Water and Dust Across California. Eriks landed rare interviews with Stuart and Linda Resnick, secretive billionaires who own Fiji water and grow hundreds of millions of pounds of water-hungry pistachios and almonds. And he pulls back the curtain on the backroom deal-making that has, in some cases, stolen the water right out from under our feet. Faith Kern, a scientist with the California Institute for Water Resources, says it's been going on for years. Even she has trouble keeping up. There is a lot of stuff that goes on really behind the scenes um, and that is completely inaccessible to most of us, even those of us who work on this topic professionally. California and other western states now experience regular weather whiplash, amplified by climate change, careening between record drought and extreme rainfall. Diana Markham covers water, wildfire, and drought for the Los Angeles Times. Years of parched weather have taught her to appreciate the green times we get. I, I think that's one thing I took away from the drought was like during it I kept thinking, I wish I would have paid more attention. I wish I, wish I could picture the snow. I wish I could picture the grass. So right now I'm trying to work, look so hard that it almost hurts. Markham, Kearns, and Eriks joined me to talk about the future of the California dream in the era of climate disruption. In his new book, Mark Eriks calls the invention of California a mad act of hubris. We took the edge of a continent a thousand miles long and we drew a line around it and called it a, a state. And then we proceeded to try to make each different state of nature inside that. There's a dozen of them equal. And so that the invention of California required the invention of a system to to uh, move the water from, you know, 750, 1,000 miles. And uh, so I think that qualifies as hubris. <laughs> so that hubris that you write about, you know, um, tell us a little more about, you know, that and how it's manifest with a system we've, we're living with today. It starts with the the first taking, which is the taking of the body of the native Californian. We had the, the most you know, concentrated population of indigenous uh, anywhere in North America, 300,000 natives. And when Father Sarah came up through Mexico and started his missions, that was the taking of the body of the Indian, and that allowed for the taking of the rivers. And then we see Sutter coming in to Northern California, gold being dis discovered, and the erecting of a system that allowed us to, that's the first, you know, the mining of gold is really the mining of water first. And so you see the flumes, which are nothing but irrigation canals made out of wood. You see dams and ditches and this really intensive experiment going on 
to move the water so it has a great deal of erosive power to unearth the, the gold. And then uh, at some point in the 1880s, the silting of the rivers end up damaging, doing great damage to uh, the alluvial plains. And California has a choice. The, the, do we mine gold? Do we mine soil? And so the industrialists who made all the money off gold, they end up living in Knob Hill in San Francisco and farming the hinterlands, and they plant wheat. So that was the industrialization beginning from mountain down to valley floor. And then we'll get into more of what happens on that valley floor. Diana Markov, you, during the drought, you wrote about a number of characters quite vividly um, that earned you the Pulitzer Prize. What are some of those characters, whether it's Diana Johnson or Fred Lujan or others, that uh, tell us their story of these, uh, you painted these very vivid portraits during the drought? When the, when the drought first started, not everybody knew about it. it. It hit the outlying agricultural towns first. And there was just this incredible hardship there that people were pretty unaware of, even in Fresno, you know, certainly not in San Francisco and not in Sacramento, where it would have maybe mattered. And um, there were people whose wells were growing dry. They, and and the, there was no civic organization, you know, responsible, no government organization, because it's your own well. So they would call and there was nothing to be done, but people didn't, I, I don't think anybody official understood how much uh, suffering was out there. And then this one woman's well went dry and she started thinking, well, I wonder how many other people's wells are dry. So she started going on these, you know, roads that nobody drives out to the mobile homes, out to the places that are really off you know, off the beaten track. And she found out all these people that didn't have water. And then she thought, well, as long as I'm counting, I'll bring them some water. So then in their little local paper, she had them put a, you know, a notice with her phone number and her address and said she was doing this in case anybody wanted to bring water. And the next day she came out to her house and her whole backyard and her garage was just full of pallets of water because people knew, they knew how bad it was. So that, that kind of sticks with me. And, and then after, after the drought left the Central Valley and kind of moved on to the rest of California, moved on to another project, where we just, a photographer named Rob Gothi and I, we just drove around California with no particular plan. And we were kind of doing this Tumblr thing, just live to see how much the rest of California was aware of what was going on, which was then the nucleus of it. And it had hit everywhere. And there were just these random stories that would even now are just kind of burned into my mind. Like we're driving down the road and we see this old man with a bucket of water, uh, watering his rose bushes. And he, it was a rose that his wife who had died had planted and he was trying to keep it alive during the drought. So he would wash his dishes and then he would use the leftover water to water this rose that meant so much to him. And the stories just kept piling up all these, all these, people that were making these tremendous personal sacrifices and using hardly any water. And at the same time, like that's not going to make a difference, right? All of the people that you're writing about are the ones that, that are, you know, that could maybe possibly change things. But there's these other people making these just yeah. horrible, 
horrible choices. And we'll get into that. So there's a huge users of water and the, and the, the small users of waters. And, and there's, yeah, there's a disparity in water like there is a lot of other things, wealth and power in our state and country. But I think there's also that, you know, there is sort of a rural small town thing that you take care of each other. So, you know, mm -hmm. if you're living by Lake Orville, which is one of our lakes that provides a lot of water for California, and you're watching it go down outside your window, and you're just watching the boats on dry land, and you're watching it drop, and you know that's the water people drink, then you start throwing in and doing your part, you know? Faith Kearns, let's bring climate into this conversation. How much is you know climate contributing to these, you know, the stress? You know, Mark Eriks has said that it's kind of crazy to build California the way it was in the in a certain period. Now, climate is is kind of making that equation different. How is it changing the water equation? Um, I think we have a growing sense that our, particularly our water infrastructure, was built for a very different uh, time when there was a lot more water coming down, um, and particularly snow, so precipitation in general. And so what we're seeing is that um, as temperatures warm, which every year over the past many years has been the warmest year on record and then the warmest year on record, um, that the, the way that we've built our water infrastructure to essentially have these large dams that capture snow melt um, and are intended to do that gradually over the course of this, the dry summer, the, the dry season in California, um, you know, is, is really challenging when more of that precipitation is falling as rain. And so what we saw in 2016 when we had a particularly rainy year that kind of ended the drought um, was that, you know, we ended up with an emergency at, at Oroville, right? Because there's there's too much water. Um, and so things are... This was a dam that almost burst, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there were a lot of other things going on there, but it does challenge our, our basic ability to kind of think about water in the way that we've always thought about it. Faith Kearns, why should someone outside California who doesn't drink California water care about what happens to water in California? Hmm... You might stump me with that. <laughs> well, I mean, we, we export a lot of food. I mean, whether you think if you live in the West or Midwest, you consume a lot of California water and fruits or nuts. You yeah. don't drink California water. That's one way that the fruits and vegetables that come out of this state matters. Yeah, I can, I can see that argument for sure. To use the cliche, the canary <laughs> in the coal mines, I mean, you've got Florida, you've got the Mississippi, you've got California. We have this, uh, we, we, we don't na need climate change to swing wildly between drought and flood. Uh, early in my book, I list the, the drought years and the flood years, and it goes on for several sentences. Uh, so when you're that inherent kind of n nature that we have, and then you add on to that, it links up to climate change, we're going to see havocs that have never been created before, and we're seeing that already. We saw it in paradise, the whole place burning off the, the California yeah. map. So I, I think we're going to be showing the, the, the way for the rest of the country. And so I think it's important to pay attention to what California is doing, right and wrong. Well, also, don't you think we're kind of a key part of the conversation because of the Central Valley and because we have droughts and floods and droughts and floods, and it's natural? That's right. It's harder to convince it used to be harder to convince people about climate change because they'd say, no, this is just California. Right. This California being California. Yeah. You're listening to a Climate One conversation about climate change and water. Coming up, will there be enough to go around? In my lifetime, the population of California has gone from 11 million to 40 million. 
and the system wasn't designed for that, the system's certainly not going to see us into a future of more houses and more almonds. So something has to give. That's up next when Climate One continues. Oh, California, I love your San Joaquin, that verdant emerald green running in between the desert and the sea. Oh, California. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and we're talking about water use in the West. My guests are Diana Markham of the Los Angeles Times, Faith Kearns of the California Institute of Water Resources, and Mark Eriks, author of The Dreamt Land, Chasing Water and Dust Across California. Farmers in California's Central Valley have been hard hit by the drought. In recent years, we've seen a push away from flood irrigation toward drip irrigation as a means of conserving water. But now Faith Kearns and other experts are flipping on flooded crops. You know, for a long time, there was a focus on water use efficiency, and that's where sort of drip irrigation technology came from, right? You used to just um, irrigate in furrows or flood or that kind of thing. And so the idea was, oh, if we can just make every drop, you know, work work to its fullest, then then things will be good. And then I think what's happened over time is people have seen that water use efficiency isn't the same thing as water conservation, right? So um, what people have been doing is instead of just um, using their water efficiently, they take what they have saved and apply it to something else. So there is no sort of like net water conservation happening. And then the other thing that's sort of come up in the last few years is just related to, again, and Mark has written extensively about groundwater um, withdrawal and subsidence, which is, you know, land sinking in the Central Valley. Um, and the fact that, you know, that, that um, drip irrigation is so efficient that it doesn't uh, help us to recharge groundwater in any way. Yeah. And so now what you're seeing is people making um, a move back towards studying how uh, flood irrigation, <laughs> um, back to the beginning, sort of full circle, um, can be used as a, a groundwater recharge tool. Mark, so. th- Eric, this sounds crazy because we've done <laughs> conversations here about kind of shaming farmers for flooding and saying, no, no, no. spend it's money to drip and now we're going to no, go back to flooding. That's just... There's this paradox of drip. Drip... <laughs> Drip, <laughs> drip has the farmer, his yields are so much higher with drip that he takes those lines and he goes uphill now where farming never was. And then he's taking up land that is so poor that, that it wasn't even for pasturage. But because the drip can deliver a precise dose of water and chemical to a root zone, you don't need good earth. So they're farming. If you look at the footprint of agriculture in the Central Valley, it's gone from the primo alluvial plain soil. Uh, that was when the rivers were first taken, turned into canals. And then when the advent of the turbine pump came in 1920, the year my grandfather arrived here, then you started seeing the extraction of the aquifer, and you started seeing the footprint of agriculture go from prime land to not so prime and now with drip, we're actually farming millions of acres of poor land. And this is the land that will probably come out of development when the groundwater regulation law goes into full effect. So are you saying that's a good thing or a bad thing? In terms of, you know, it's, it's ex- making water go further and it's getting food off of land that didn't previously produce food. Well, when, when the resource is finite, then you have to make choices. And so in the San Joaquin Valley, they're going to have to choose which land deserves that water. And you will see in the San Joaquin Valley, there's 6 million acres of farmland. It'll probably go down to 4.5 because they've decided to idle the land that an argument can be made, a strong argument, should have never been farmed in the first place. It's alfalfa 
It's Holsteins. You know, we need to find a place other than California that where cows are truly happy. Because <laughs> our, our, our land and water is too valuable for Holsteins. It, a lot of them get trucked. And that's going to upset all your Azorean Portuguese <laughs> friends. Which They're are, already moving. Right, right. Diana's uh, most recent book is about the Azorean Portuguese in the valley. And then going, she goes back um, to the to the islands. And, and, and that's that culture that I'm an, I'm an upset. So you're going to have to watch my back now. Okay. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, there's this, even if it shouldn't be there, we have all of these groups, you know, all these cultures mm. that are parts of those places, those places that should have never been farmed before are the places that people came from all over the world and they didn't have a lot to get started. So that's exactly the places where some of our most beautiful and interesting cultures are. Yeah. And that's where our stories are. It, I mean, we're losing so much more than, you know, this many acres of drip irrigation. We're going to lose these incredibly close-knit towns, these, these cultures that, like Fair, I wrote Fairmead. about the... Yeah. Fairmead, the Black Okies. Mm -hmm. I mean. Fairmead's the Black Okies, uh, the, you know, the Azorians out in yeah. Turleri and Turlock. There's all these people that came... They came and they brought all their traditions and they lived in really isolated places and they lived together. So all of that got passed down, you know, whether they were from Mexico or whether they were from Punjab or whether they were from the Azores and these isolated towns out in these like vast farmlands. Those those are the ones. That yeah, they're going to wither. And those are the places you go that most people in California don't even know exist and certainly don't, certainly don't go. If you're just joining us, we're talking about water at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. My guests are Mark Eriks, Diana Markham, and Faith Kearns. Um, California has abundant water this year, but some investors are betting that water constraints in the future will drive prices upward. Rye Rivard covers water and power for the Voice of San Diego. He's reported on land and water rights purchases in Southern California that success, suggests speculation by some unusual investors. Over the past several years, a company called Renewable Resources Group has bought land in the Imperial Valley. In one case, it resold land within a couple of years for about double the price to the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California, which provides water to nearly 20 million people. We talked to Rye Rivard about what these secretive deals worth hundreds of millions of dollars might mean for the future of California water. If you look at the Imperial Valley in particular, it's really desert. Um, the only reason it's a big farming area is because they diverted the Colorado River into their valley. Renewable Resources Group is this Los Angeles-based company that does water, land, and energy development. Renewable came in uh, working with Harvard as the sort of silent partner, the Harvard Foundation, and uh, bought a bunch of land. They knew uh, that people were interested in the water that came with this land. We're talking, you know, multi-million dollar deals for thousands, tens of thousands of acres of land. So much of water in California, so, so a lot of this water trading happens beneath the radar. There could be other companies that we don't even know about. There's so little fresh water in the world. Some of it's getting polluted. Uh, some of it's um, being rearranged by climate change in unpredictable ways. So betting on making money from water is a good bet. As water becomes scarcer, I think we really need to start paying more attention to who these people are, who these actors are, who these 
lobbyists and officials, many of them unelected are, and who these companies are. And if we don't, I think we could find ourselves subject to prices and situations and scarcity, real or artificial, that we could have prevented or dealt with or anticipated if we'd just been paying more attention. That was Roy Rivard from The Voice of San Diego. Faith Kearns, um, water markets are controversial, but uh, water is unique in some respects as both a commodity and the UN has declared a human right to water, so it's both a right and a commodity. Um, your take there on sort of you know, investing, is that necessarily bad to be trading water rights? Um, so I'm not a money person. I'm an ecologist. Uh, by training. And so for me, um, yes, I think it's a bad thing. Uh, do I have some other solution per se? No. Um, I am not a huge fan of the water market conversation. Um, I think for me, what I've you know kind of come to over the last many years of working on this issue in California is that that there, there is a lot of stuff that goes on really behind the scenes um, and that is completely uh, inaccessible to most of us, even those of, those of us who work on this topic professionally um, in a way that's pretty disturbing <laughs> for me. Um, and I think, you know, I'd actually like to see us move in a completely different direction was just back to the idea of, you know, water really as a public, re a, I don't even like the word resources, how radical I'm getting these days is, is um, you know, it belongs to all of us. And so this idea that you've got kind of the 1%, um, you know, capitalizing even further on this, this, you know, finite resource is incredibly disturbing to me. Um, and I am really grateful for people like Rye and, and Mark who actually spend the time to kind of figure out what's going on uh, behind the scenes. I've sat with certainly colleagues um, talking about how we feel, you know, like our, our hands are tied behind our backs a little bit because we aren't operating in that same financial space that other people are. And we're kind of running around um, trying to do the best we can. But also these forces are so much bigger than any of us. Mark Eriks, we live in an economy where most everything is, is you know, traded. There's marketplaces for all sorts of things, you know, parking spaces, et cetera. But somehow water, people seem to think differently about water. Selling water. It is a problem. It, 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 it um, you know, it's all, it belongs to all of us. But this water, like Imperial, it was captured, if it was captured before 1914, they have these rights to use that water at beneficial use. And we have, uh, I won't get into all the complexities of it, but we have this very weird water law out here. It's a combination of appropriative rights. In other words, that you could take a river and take that water via canal to some farmland far away if it's beneficial use. And then also you can use it along the riparian corridor, riparian rights. And we have a kind of combination of those two. Selling water, um, I, I don't mind if it's farmer selling to farmer. What really bothers me is farmer selling to city. And we're going to see, because the, the farmer can never compete with the cities for that water. And if that water leaves the farm belt, it ends up going up and over the mountains so LA can be, build more you know, houses across the desert. Um, that's to me a problem, um, but that's the farm boy in me, uh, going back a few generations talking. Cause you know, there's a whole, yeah, the sort of urban coastal versus the inland farming tension in California water wars. There's yeah. a lot there. But this um, kind of stuff goes beyond that. I mean, that, this is dystopian. This is people trying to make 
billions and billions of dollars on there not being enough water to even drink. I mean, I was there when the UN came to some of the smaller towns in the East Valley. I mean, the UN came to California because people don't have drinking water. So (laughs) how can we even discuss it? I, I, I have like, it's hard for me to even think of it in a calm sort of way because I just have these snapshots. I mean, I, I remember the first time all the almonds came in. Do you remember? We were having dinner, and we were both exhausted because we'd both been um, covering drought forever. And there was just this one moment where it's like, who's putting these almonds in? Where's the water coming from? This was like the absolute height of the drought. And yeah. every time you drove down the road, here were more. And at the same time, it was the same year that the UN is in another part of the valley because people don't have drinking water. And person after person is getting up and saying, I spend 30% of my the money that I make as a farm worker. I mean, they're, they're really physically going thirsty. They don't have enough water to drink. They can't give their babies baths. And in the same time, you've got these backroom deals that you're tracking tra- yeah, down. Yeah, I mean, the water became a means by which the, the, the valley became one of the most unequal places in the world. But now they're treating it like oil. They're just going to be trading it. Yeah, so... so that's something that we have to confront. H- how those trades happen? Um, are you allowed to sell to urban at some? You know, already there's a there's a farmer named Vidovich. He's not really a farmer. He's a developer from Silicon Valley who's come <clears throat> up and over the mountain to the San Joaquin Valley. He's buying up all this farmland, but he he doesn't care much about the farmland. He's farming temporarily. It's the water, and he's already sold uh, a chunk of it for $75 million to the folks in Mojave so they can continue to grow. It's, you know, I don't want to date myself, but in, in, in my lifetime, the, the populations of California has gone from 11 million to 40 million. And the system wasn't designed for that. The system's certainly not going to see us into a future of more houses and more almonds. So something has to give. And, and the system is cracking. And that's what I basically do in my book. I go inside those cracks, both historical and present big farmers small and try to figure out, you know, how did we get to this madness and where is this madness taking us? And Mark Eric's one place you got where very few people have, have uh, been able to go is, you know, into the, the empire of, of Stuart Resnick. Uh, you know, he started out uh, at UCLA waxing floors, bought a alarm company, sold for $100 million. This is a secretive billionaire farmer. Tell us about the Resnicks and how you got inside and into their, their secretive world. Well, Stuart Resnick and I have one thing in common. Our fathers were both bar owners. Um, so we, I was there. able to trade on that. He came from New Jersey, a Jewish kid, comes west, uh, becomes a millionaire at UCLA Law School. Why is it UCLA Law School? And then you, you can read how he accumulates that. In the 70s, he decides he needs a hedge, hedge against inflation. He comes to Delano which is one of the civil rights datelines of America, right? It's where Cesar Chavez's movement began, and he buys some farmland there. And, and then he buys the farmland from the oil companies who didn't care about farming anyhow. And pretty soon, he's the biggest grower of pistachios, almonds, mandarins, and pomegranates in the world. He lives in Beverly Hills, and his farming empire up and over the mountain exists in a place called Lost Hills. It's 80 miles as the crow flies. Couldn't be farther. And um, so I get inside his whole empire. 
uh, and it's not just his, it's his wife, Linda, mm -hmm. is a marketing genius. She came up when, when they put the bowl of mandarins, the first crop of mandarins in front of her, and they could peel them very nicely, and they tasted sweet. Uh, she, well, we have to come up with a name for this. And so she came up with the name Cuties. And then the partner that they had, they got into a big war, and the partner ended up buying the Cuties for $40 million. And so she just turned around and invented the halos. And now in the, in, in, on the land of the valley, we have a war going on between the cuties and the halos. <laughs> and, and you write that, at, you know, at some point the story gets creepy. Where does it get creepy? <laughs> oh, we haven't creeped you out enough already? No, no. So the Resnicks, um, after about 30 years of farming, they figured out we've got to give back. And they give, they're giving back in a major way. She stopped the major donations to the... the the hospitals of LA and the, and the museums, and much of their money is now going into improving the lives of farmers, farm workers, and their children. And so she's founded, it's like 70 million a year some years. So she has founded these charter schools um, and doing some extraordinary things. And then they're, they're fighting diabetes in a way that no one's ever fought it. And that's where it gets a little creepy. She's getting into, she really seems to care what's yeah. got a few thousand workers, what they eat and right. try no, to get no, no, no. They employees have, on a health care. It's, it's a yeah. wellness, a wellness. It's a yeah. whole wellness oh, program. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's to be admired, a lot of it. But it gets into social engineering at some point where they're, they're really telling them to stop eating tortillas. That's a tough one. And then she serves at their, at, their, at their processing plant. They have this incredible restaurant that serves wild salmon, and they do cauliflower in ways I've never seen. It's so creative. Yeah. But what she's doing now is she believes, and there's obviously lots of science, that everything about us begins in our guts. So she's trying to change the biome of the workers' guts. And so before they eat, she's asking them to drink a little concoction, and that concoction is made of Bragg's apple cider vinegar, Cutie juice, no, no, halo juice, <laughs> um, ginger, turmeric. And so it gets a little weird. If you're just joining us, we're telling stories about water and the California dream and how that relationship is changing in the era of climate change. Our guests are Mark Eriks, author of The Dreamt Land, Chasing Water and Dust Across California. Dinah Markham, Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter with the Los Angeles Times. And Faith Kearns, a scientist with the California Institute for Water Resources. We're going to go to our lightning round and ask you to just respond quickly. To, I'll mention a noun and get your first response to what, what comes to mind, one word or phrase that comes to mind. First for Mark Eriks. What comes to mind when you hear William Mulholland, the civil engineer who designed the aqueduct that brings water to Los Angeles? The first great stealing. Faith Kearns, science instilled with aloha. Oh, boy. Um, solidarity. Uh, Faith Kearns, climate grief. Uh, deep well. Dinah Markham, Belize. Um, the Mayans and drought. We'll get to that. Uh, Mark Eric's uh, water markets. A possible solution. Possible. True or false, uh, Faith Kearns, you have pure dread about the California fire season now. Oh, very true. Mark Eric's true or false, during the recent California drought, some reporters played to the trope that the land was drying out. Mm, that's true. There was a paradox again happening. Also, uh, Mark Eric's true or false, the real story was that amid the drought, there were record crops from trees and fields. That's true. 
True or false, Dinah Markham, during the drought, you were afraid you would never see the snow on the mountains again near your home. It was absolutely true. And I, I mean, I'm, it's so amazing to me now, like even though I know that it's just a little reprieve and that it's, you know, coming, it's coming back again, I know. But just if you're a Californian now this spring to have driven around and seen those hills green and to see water in the lakes and to see snow on the mountain. I mean, there was just a time that I, I thought I didn't look close enough. I think that's one thing I took away from the drought was like during it, I kept thinking, I wish I would have paid more attention. I wish I wish I could picture the snow. I wish I could picture the grass. So right now I'm trying to work, look so hard that it almost hurts. True or false faith currents, climate scientists should receive training in grief similar to doctors, caregivers and humanitarian aid workers. True. True or false, Bruce Springsteen wrote a song based on an article you did about farm workers cooking meth on the side to make ends meet. That's true. A colleague and I did a piece on that, and I got a call saying, would you help him write some lyrics? So that's how hydriotic acid got into that song. No one has ever put hydriotic acid into a song. (laughs) But that's his, he likes to get real, so... That's what I discovered. Uh, True or false, Dinah Markham, billionaire farmers Stuart and Diane Resnick are always inviting you out to their farm. Well, not to their farm, but I I get a lot of press releases for, you know, all of their good works. All right, let's give them a round of applause again (laughs) for the... um, listening to a conversation about water, weather, and wildfires in California. This is Climate One. Up ahead, coming face to face with all three at once. And every night this cloud comes up and inside the cloud there's lightning that starts more fires. The bottom line is it is just hellishly scary. That's up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. My guests are author Mark Eriks, Los Angeles Times reporter Diana Markham, and scientist Faith Kearns. The 2013 Rim Fire in the Sierra Nevadas lasted nine weeks and burned 265,000 acres. At the time, it was the third largest wildfire in California history. Los Angeles Times journalist Diana Markham was on the scene when it first broke out. So I'd been covering drought and I'd been seeing all of these traumas, and I'd also been seeing all this resilience and hope and the best of humanity, so it was just, it was moving on all levels. And then I think probably about when I was as tired as I thought I could be, the rim fire broke out, which, you know, now we've been through paradise. But I think what was scary about the rim fire, even at the time, was that I knew paradise was coming. Yeah. So we were in a little town where you could see it. It's right on the edge of Yosemite. And every night, um, these, this cloud, you know, fires, they create their own weather. And this, this cloud comes up. And inside the cloud, there's lightning that starts more fires. It's, 
you can explain it better than I can probably, but the bottom line is it is just hellishly scary. So, and it comes every single evening. So we were staying in this cute little town, you know, with the white picket fences and the, have you seen my lost dog? And, Mm. you know, life, life is all around you. There's geraniums in the flower box. It's, it's there. But at the same time, certain time of night, we'd all walk out into the middle of the road and just wait for this gigantic cloud to come up that's just larger than, if you haven't seen it with your own eyes, I can't, I don't know if I can, have, you've both seen them, right? I mean, they just, it towers. It's, it's, taller, than the, it's taller than the Sierras. And, um, and at the time, the firefighters didn't know if they would be able to fight it. And it was the first time I'd ever heard firefighters even admit to the possibility of defeat. So I don't think that's ever going to leave me. Yeah, that stayed. Faith Kearns, you're writing a book about sort of, you know, scientists are trained to leave emotion out of their work, and yet there's grief coming in. You, if you can't look at the climate reality and not have dark moments. So you're, tell us about your work trying to bring the emotional dimension into scientists, which they're trained that that's flimsy and that, that's, there's no place for that. Yeah, I mean, it was actually working on fire. Um, I used to work at a fire center at UC Berkeley. I mean, it was working on fire that actually really um, galvanized for me that this was a huge issue um, because I was up in Wairika in the northern part of the state in a, you know, a fairly rural town. And we were doing, I, I work for UC Cooperative Extension. We do a lot of field days and things like that. And so I was out, um, we were doing a fire safety demonstration thing and um, giving presentations and things. And this man actually came up to me after um, our group presentation and he kind of had tears in his eyes and he was really like, I, I didn't even understand, I, I was so out of what was was happening with out of sync with what was happening with him. I couldn't even understand fully what he was telling me at the time, even though I really should have been able to recognize he was telling me that we had traumatized, re-traumatized him because mm. that community had been through a wildfire, a pretty bad set of wildfires, which Mendocino County has had many times, but um, just a few months before we were there. And we kind of walked in being like, hey, here's how to you know keep your house from burning down in a fire without ever recognizing that these people had just been through this. There were feelings of guilt and shame and sadness and all of this stuff that that really made it so that the the research that we were trying to talk about was completely ineffective because it wasn't in any way what we would now call the sort of trauma-informed perspective. Mm. And so, you know, I don't only think about grief. I think there are many emotions wrapped up in sort of what's happening in our world. And I am a big advocate of making room for all of those. And I think part of that is is scientists who are generally trained to think of subjectivity and, and our emotional Ourselves as completely separate from our work, that 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 concept is actually harming um, our scientific work, particularly for those of us who work in this very community engaged issue and on things that directly affect people's lives. So saying how bad it is, sort of there's a, the rap against is science is like focusing on the doom and gloom that that either turns people off. I mean, on the right, I've learned that people on the right just say that's liberal whining and, and it doesn't reach them. Other people feel completely overwhelmed and numbed. And so that's not that 30 years of dispersing facts, professing, uh, forecasting doom has moved people somewhat, 
but it hasn't solved the problem yet. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I'm less, you know, focused on sort of persuasion than I am on just the idea that um, we're facing these issues where what's happening for scientists internally is actually a valuable thing to kind of understand so that when we're interacting with, with people on some of these really emotional issues that we're more available and that there's a, a deeper set of possibilities there, kind of the way a therapist would work with the, that deep emotional material. Mark Eriks, you, you write about a lot of characters who've sort of, you know, prevailed over nature and building this this system that you say is mad. I'd like to hear your thoughts on on this. A lot of people, farmers have have lived through droughts before, their granddad did, et cetera, but climate makes it different. It does. I mean, we don't know where it's going because once it links up, and I, and I got a sense of that. Um, I spent um, three months up in paradise uh, telling that story, not just in the town, but in the in the in the forest. And it, you'll see how that tragedy played out over decades. How it how it, the, the the things that the interlocking factors that that made tragedy happen. Um, and and the town is built atop a geologic chimney. And it was, a, you know, they called it the town of paradise, but it really was a city with all its suburban sprawl. So it was, and in the wildland urban interface, we've got almost 10 million Californians living. Dan and Mark, I want to give you a chance to talk about, you're currently working about uh, the Mayan civilization, two droughts there. Tell us what you, the, the nut graph of that one. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, some hope. <laughs> okay, this isn't entirely depressing then. So I, I, I'm working on a story about butterflies and Belize and uh, some quirky characters. But while I was working on this book, I started looking more into the Mayans because that's how all the ruins were. And I met some people that were doing all the research. And what they're finding, you know, when I was a kid, the big mystery was what happened to the Mayans. It's, they pretty much now know that it was drought and that it was the ground subsiding. But what I'm finding really interesting is the latest research shows that they had two major droughts. They had a drought that was much worse than the one that toppled the civilization. And they survived it. They lived through that. And then this other drought, this other great drought came, and they, I mean, an entire civilization that, by the way, was much bigger than anything we ever thought before. I mean, have you guys seen it lately? It's like all of Belize, big hunks of Mexico. Um, it disappeared, just boom. And they think the difference was income inequality. It's, this, it's the things we're talking about, that the mm -hmm. first drought, they didn't have all of the fountains and the lakes. They were all for, for everyone to enjoy together, and everybody lived in fairly modest homes. But the second drought, this sort of um, rich upper class had risen, and they had these mansions, and they had deforested, you know, large swaths of acreage, and they had built their own personal fountains and their own personal rivers, and they just didn't have the resources when the time came, and they disappeared. But I, I kind of find hope in that, because... You do? Because <laughs> they lived through a worse one. I, I got, I've sort of found hope in your book. I mean, yeah. they're, they're all like... <laughs> They're, they're horrible people, yeah. but look what they did, you know? Like, yeah. if, if those guys with the, the amount of education they had, you know, was able to do all that for just greed, like, maybe there's a little chance that we could save the world with 
a higher purpose. <laughs> We're talking with Mark Eric, Dinah Markham, and Faith Kearns at Climate One. We're going to go to audience questions, invite you to join us at the microphone there. Um, let's go. Welcome to Climate One. Hi. Um, if I was a fairy godmother and I gave you all the resources you wanted, all the political support you needed, as well as public will, what would you do to hit the reset button on California's relationship to water in short, like creating a more resilient infrastructure? And I know this is a massive question, so even just a one element response would be great. <laughs> do you want me to give my uneducated one while you guys yes. format your big one? <laughs> okay, they'll, they'll do the system thing, but I, I would take that money, and we have hundreds of thousands of people in California that don't have drinking water. I think I would start, you know, I'd do concentric circles. I think the first thing to do would make sure that everybody in the state has drinking water. Then you guys can take it. Well, and a bill, a bill has just done that. So we're, we're going we're gonna to see. Yeah. 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 I mean, they, I mean we, it wouldn't take very much. I mean, there's towns that only have, you know, four or 500 people and they are all putting their quarters in those little windmill machines to get enough water to drink. I mean... Third we could take $1,000 there, and that would take so much pressure off of those people that don't even have, you know, water to take baths and things. But, I mean, that's, that's not taking yeah. care of the problem. I would just I would that, take some, some of your money, money and do a, that yep. first. What would you guys do to fix it, though? Faith Kearns? <laughs> I mean, for me, the question isn't so much about money. I mean, I think we need a fundamental just rethink of our relationship with water in the state. Um, I would even go so far as probably to think a little bit along the lines of what a lot of my sort of humanities and social science colleagues would say, which is thinking about water having agency, basically, um, you know, and that... Um, yeah, that we need to think we need to think of water as having its own agency and and less about our control of it and what it can do for us. And that that's a pretty fundamental reset. So, yeah, let's go to our next question. Welcome. Evening. My name is Noah Oppenheim. My the background of my question is many here are familiar with the John Wesley Powell concept that state boundaries in the Western Empire should have been formed around watersheds. What's great, what's stupid about that concept? And secondarily, how might we remap the politics of water in this modern era? Well, we did that. If you look at the original uh, creation of the valley, you'll see that they took their own rivers, their own backyard rivers, and diverted. Unfortunately, they diverted 95% of the flow to agriculture. And once you do that, it's very hard to take it back. So I think... Um, in the valley, in the central valley, there was respect to develop only... Re remember, everyone wants to say uh, the, the middle of California is desert. Well, by rainfall it is, but by that incredible miracle of the Sierra, it isn't. We've got those rivers running across, and they ended up taking those rivers. I think L.A. is an example of what you're going beyond, Powell, where the L.A. River was puny. They ended up using it by the 1890s, and then it became this idea that to grow, we're going to have to steal. And that became the first theft. And then when the valley farmers had run out of their river water, or had, had taken it all, and then taken what they could from the earth, then they looked at L.A. and said, hey, if L.A. can go afar and get their river, we can do the same. And that's when they went up to Sacramento and took the flows of the Sacramento with 
Northern California agreeing at the time because the Sacramento was a flood risk, great, great floods. So yeah, we'll give you some of our flood. We'll move, we'll solve our flood problem. You'll solve your drought problem. Well, it's obviously gotten a lot crazier since then. Faith Kearns, for people who live in, in the American West, you know, we're talking about issues in, in California, but these issues, some of them apply beyond the boundaries of California. Um, f- talk to us about fire and affecting water quality. Sometimes we talk about fire, we talk about water. Let's talk about them together. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it, it's been a really interesting evolution in my sort of career. I've been out of, you know, I've been a professional for 15, 20 years at this point, And, um, you know, when I was in graduate school, there were people who were sort of like, oh, I wonder how water affects riparian areas. So, you know, the near stream and fish and things like that. And that was kind of as far as it went. And even that was a very small field of study. And I think, you know, what we're seeing right now is this really interesting thing where um, fire is it sort of moved out of urban areas, you know, after the 1906 earthquake, we learned how to sort of keep houses from building, burning down in urban areas, moved into this sort of wildland fire, urban interface thing. And now what we're seeing is that fire is actually um, maybe beginning in, in a wildland area, but then burning down, you know, it becomes an urban conflagration. And that has brought up a whole new set of water concerns in the last few years that just are completely new in a lot of ways. Um, every day um, I'm reading stories about the, the water system um, in, in Paradise, and that was true in the Tubbs Fire in Santa Rosa as well, that you know there, were ben, there was benzene found in the water system, and, and we're seeing the same thing in the campfire, and there are academics who are critiquing even the, the protocols of what how the state measures whether water is considered safe. Um, so I think we're going to see you know, more than and just the idea that if if it's wetter, maybe we won't have as much fire or maybe we'll have more because there's more grass. It's really getting into this much more sort of what I think about as a public health issue um, where it's, you know, it's not only smoke and all these things that are happening with fire, but it is also literally, you know, really becoming a broad public health issue with water implications that are much deeper than I think many of us had had thought. been listening to Climate One. We've been talking about keeping the California dream alive in a warped climate. My guests were Faith Kearns, a scientist with the California Institute for Water Resources, Diana Markham of the Los Angeles Times, and Mark Eriks, author of The Dreamt Land, Chasing Water and Dust Across California. To hear more Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast at climateone.org. Please help us get more people talking about climate by giving us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. Sarah Catherine Coxon is the strategy and content manager. The audio engineers are Mark Kirshner, Justin Norton, and Arnav Gupta. Annie Chelsea edited the program. Dr. Gloria Duffy is the CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton. <laughs>